Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Heath was very much looking forward to this week's illustration and uh, really liked what he came up with. I know that looks a little comic bookish to you, but I think that's very accurate to what actually was shown to Ezekiel in the vision that birthed that little song from the 1920s or whatever it sounded like that we played while you were greeting each other. That old song is an old spiritual called Dem Bones. And it was actually used to teach children anatomy, what bone was connected to what bone and all that. But it also came right out of this, this particular vision of the valley of dry bones shown to Ezekiel where all these piles of dry, dead bones reconstituted themselves into living bodies again. Now, this is a familiar story, but I wonder how much we've really thought about this story, even if we've grown up in the church. We sang songs about it as kids, but it is one of the most powerful passages to teach us what it is to have hope in the midst of despair, to believe that dead things can live again. And I... It's hard to put a value on this idea that hope is central to the Christian faith. If we can't hope for things, then Christianity starts to lose some of its power for us personally. I want you to think for a minute about the might of the United States of America. Okay, Think about... Have you ever really just looked at the Pentagon? That is one ginormous building. I mean, look at it. Every one of those windows is like a whole separate office, and this thing just goes around from five sides. And all of the military intelligence and uh, and planning, it's not an oxymoron. There really is some intelligence in the military. I mean, they are planning everything there. This is the seat of power of the mightiest military force that has ever walked the face of the earth. This military force could destroy the world if it chose to. I mean, just scar the entire planet take over everything on this hemisphere if it chose, and that is housed in the United States of America. I want you to think about how Wall Street and, and its finances, it, it, its economic power still holds sway over the world. That, that influence may be declining, but it is absolutely without debate that the United States is the, the foremost economic power right now in the world. And this is another arena in which we are just absolutely dominating the global culture. Nobody makes movies like the United States of America. And the movies that America makes shapes so much of the ethos and pathos of the global culture. Let's just think about that for a minute. I want you to consider how you feel about America today. I travel enough internationally to tell you that whenever I pull out my U.S. passport, I feel kind of good. I'm like, yeah, buddy, watch out, man. I will go to my embassy and I will be on you. Like, and so I, because I'm an American, I perceive that that has some power even when I travel internationally. When I speak English, it sets me ahead of the curve because I can communicate broadly across many nations. And so as an American, I still feel this strength coursing through my being. I tried all week to imagine a world where America doesn't have dominance in the global scene. And I'll be honest with you, because I've grown up with America being in the lead all my life, I honestly could not picture 
realistically what it would look like if America were in the future what the United Kingdom is today. I mean, honest to God, I, I feel like America is always going to be the boss of everything. I feel like America will never lose its edge. We might dip a while, but we'll recover. That's the way I feel. But I know that I'm joined in feeling that way by millions and millions of Assyrians who followed Sennacherib and millions of Babylonians who followed Nebuchadnezzar and millions of Persians who followed Xerxes and then Artaxerxes and Cyrus. Millions of Greeks who followed a young guy named Alexander. And do you remember what the Roman Empire meant? Today, Rome is just a really sexy tourist attraction. It's a great place to go vacationing. It's a place where the guys in the Vatican wear funny hats. But nobody quakes in fear at the mention of Rome anymore. And so the truth is, there is a real possibility that the world our children grow up in and and live in will be very different from the world in which you and I live right now. There's an Indian-American journalist and scholar, uh, an author. He wrote a book called The Post-American World, and his name is Fareed Zakaria. And he writes in a very interesting way. It's not some kind of America-bashing book, but he paints a realistic picture that America should recognize that its dominance in the world is not an irreversible situation. That one day, America may be nothing more than a byword. Oh, dudes, remember America? Remember when we said the U.S. and everyone, ooh. Who's afraid of England right now? Raise your hand. Just the mention of England makes you nervous. Yeah, nobody. And that's what America could become. Now, this is not a political rally. It's a sermon. The reason I'm mentioning all of that is this. Can you honestly imagine a time when the security you feel as an American is shattered we're the laughing stock of the world. We're the used-to-be's. Because that's a lot of, that's, that very much describes the way it felt to be an Israelite at the time that Ezekiel received this vision. They were a nation at the pinnacle of greatness, and then strife and sin and internal conflict tore the nation apart. They stopped being faithful to God, and in a very short time, God removed his blessing He removed his protection, and the once great nation of Israel fell first to the Assyrians and then to the hated Babylonians, and now all they knew was that their great cities lie in ruins. I mean, just think about it. Can you picture a time, this is from a a, a screenshot from a video game, actually, but imagine our iconic institutions like Wall Street and Hollywood and great cities like Washington, D.C., seats of power, devastated, lying in ruins and ashes. People picking through the rubble, remembering what used to be on those streets and in those buildings. I want you to picture that for a moment because the Israelites had gotten the wind just punched right out of them. And so as Ezekiel begins to really minister in power to these fallen, defeated people living in exile in Babylonia, in Babylon, listen, they are listening to their children get educated in a language they hardly understand receiving culture and values and customs that are not they're just so foreign to them. Everything's different, and they just feel totally wiped out. It's then that Ezekiel receives this great vision of a valley filled with dead, dry bones. And the story of the vision as it unfolds is one of revival, quite literally. Not revival like, you know, the meetings where people, and you feel really great, and you, you're shedding tears and snots running down, and the next day you're right back to the old life. Not that kind of revival. 
But think about revival in its root words. It literally means, when we do CPR on someone, we say we've revived them. We have brought back to life something that's dead. That's what the Valley of Dry Bones vision is all about. The things that lie in ashes and ruins, things that are dying or dead, can come back to life. And I want to journey through this vision with you and point out some things that are very important to understand about revival. Whether it's the revival of a dying marriage, the revival of a broken friendship, a heart that's just getting colder towards God and towards other people every day, maybe it's a dying business, a dying career. Maybe you feel like your relationship with your kids is dying. Your teenager is about to leave the house and you don't have them. They're slipping away, and you just feel like, help me. I feel in great despair because there's something in my life that is just dying. There's no life left in it. We're going to look at what revival is and how it works. The first thing we want to look at is the possibility of revival. You know, in many medical dramas, there's a tense moment where somebody goes into flatline, right? You see this horrible thing. I've actually seen this working in, in an emergency room setting or in an in OR. I've watched people flatline. It's a very strange feeling watching somebody's thing just go. And at that moment in a medical drama, because you have a script, what happens next is somebody charges up the defibrillator paddles and they say clear and then right? They hit the person with a jolt of electricity, and there's a tense moment where everyone in the audience is waiting with bated breath. And all of a sudden, you hear it. Beep. Beep. And everyone cheers, and there's tears flowing because defibrillators are a very tangible symbol of the possibility of revival. It doesn't always work, but if they didn't exist, then that flat line would be the end of the story for everyone. There's no place to turn. It's such a final thing. And the truth is, death is pretty final. It weakens us in the knees. We have a real hard time with death because for us, we're powerless over it. It's the end of the story, isn't it? But God says that even in the face of something dying, I mean, we hit that line even when it's not human life, but it's a marriage, let's say. We know in America that half of the marriages that start so optimistically cross a threshold where they say, you know what, it's really over. It's not not finalized on paper, but this marriage is officially done. My heart is out of it. Your heart is out of it. We've both agreed in our spirits that we don't want this anymore. And when I look at you, I feel nothing but deadness and pain. Marriages get to that point. They don't get there overnight, but they get there. And that feeling of deadness weighs heavily down on us, doesn't it? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been there already, watching your parents go through a divorce or watching a a business that was once thriving just hit the dirt. Family lie in ruins. And you know that you need hope. But before we can grasp at hope, we have to face the harsh reality that deadness is a pretty heavy thing. It's serious business. Look what it says here. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. And listen, he qualifies it this way, bones that were very dry, 
The reason for the emphasis is that the vision God showed Ezekiel was not bones that were fresh, bones that were still glistening with a little moisture. These are bones that are dead beyond any doubt. There's no debating. This is nothing but a mass graveyard. Picture it. Millions and millions of skeletons strewn about this valley, covered in dust. This is a powerful vision, but Ezekiel needed to see the deadness he was up against before he could preach about life. And that vision was a very powerful, vivid depiction of the state of Israel, both as a nation and as a spiritual people. They were about as dead as dead can get. You know, there's a special kind of sadness for people who once knew the former glory of a thing and then have to watch it after it's deteriorated. Any of us who watched the original Star Wars trilogy and then had to endure I can't even, it just makes me angry to look at that face. But anybody who saw this and then took our kids to watch this and, and listened to them go, oh, that's awesome. You just ache in your heart. Because yes, there are lots of bells and whistles, but you know what it used to be, the glory that once was, and your heart breaks at how low the standards have gotten in your children's generation. These people to whom Ezekiel prophesied, eventually got permission to return to Jerusalem. i got to shut that off. It's awful. And when they returned to Jerusalem, they rebuilt the temple first. There was a horrible emptiness because that, that huge lot that used to house the glorious temple that Solomon built for God was just rubble. It was just a ruin. And as they laid the foundation, poured the concrete for this new temple... Because they lacked the funds and all of that, it was much smaller, much shabbier than the original. All they had was a concrete slab and an altar built on top of that, and they were using it for worship. And listen to what it says in Ezra, chapter 3, verse 12. It captures the moment when they had a large assembly to commemorate the laying of the new foundation. Listen to what it says. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundations of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. There is a special sadness for those who knew how great a thing was and have to watch it die. And the question we have as we see what passes for glory today, when we remember what was, was this question, this burning question, can it ever be as it was before? Can life and glory ever be restored to that which has lost its vigor. I wonder if some of you right now are in a marriage that is much different today than when you were a shiny new groom or bride standing at the altar. I get as a pastor, this is one of my favorite things is to do weddings, because I love the optimism. It just washes over me. What's much harder is the counseling that follows in the years ahead. That couple standing like, we're going to be the most awesomest couple that ever was in couplehood. You know, we're going to, we're, they're going to write poems about how much we loved each other. And I see that in their eyes, absolutely honest intention to make this work and sing and dance. And years later, the same couple may be on the phone with me saying, I have to suppress the desire to vomit every time I look at that woman. That's a direct quote, by the way. 
I won't tell you who. Do you know what it makes me feel like to hear words like that? From a couple who stood in front of me and in front of God and in front of their family under covenant authority and said, we do. And to see it come to that, it's heartbreaking. It makes me wonder, is there anything as a pastor that I can say or do that could possibly salvage this? Because the death of it the stink of that death rises to my nostrils too, and I'm defeated by it. And I just want to say to them, I don't know if I can help you. This is bad, guys. Somewhere inside, both of you have turned off a switch. I don't know if I can turn it back on. And I'm tempted to just say, dead is dead. What can be done? Listen then to this question, this powerful question, which God asked Ezekiel in the face of this vision. Hey, Ezekiel, he calls him son of man. Can these bones live? Do you have any idea what a stupid question that sounds like? Because Ezekiel's looking at them, and the dust of the ages is spread over these bones. And, he goes, <laughs> and I'm sure Ezekiel wanted to say, uh-uh. Don't you have eyes, God? Am I the one who's got to be smart around here? He's looking at it, that's really dead. There is no hope for this. It's done. But Ezekiel wisely says, this is a great answer. You should always answer like this when God asks you a hard question. Oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Which means I know the real answer, but I'm not going to get in trouble saying it. So I don't know, God. You're pretty powerful. Maybe even for something this dead, you've got a trick up your sleeve left. You know why that question is so important? Do you know why it's so central to what it means to be a Christian? Because the thing is, Everything dies in this world. Death is commonplace, and the power to take life, to suck it out of something, rests in each of our hands. It is not divine to kill something. Every one of us has killed something in this world. We've killed a child's hopes. We've killed plants. I know that. I'm a serial killer in the green world. I mean, we've killed plants. We've killed businesses. We've killed relationships. We've killed GPAs. Some of you have decimated, done violence to your GPA, haven't you? We kill things. That's what we do. It is not divine to take life. Anyone can do that. But you know what we can't do? We can't breathe life back into a dead thing. That's where our powers end. You can reassemble all the parts through microsurgery, attach every vessel, every, every nerve, every muscle correctly, but you cannot tell that body to live again. That is where our powers hit the wall. And you say of anything that is dead, this is where my powers are finished and I'm I'm reminded again of my finiteness as a human being. I so badly want to revive this thing, but I cannot do it. I easily killed it, but I can't seem to get it to live again. The reason this question is so important is it pushes us hard in the direction of God. Because it causes us to turn to the only one that has ever existed who can breathe life into a dead thing, who has demonstrated it again and again. Everything dies, but it is divine to put life back in to what is dead. That alone is the domain of God. What he's saying is, Ezekiel, do you have faith that I can make these bones live again? 
He's not asking Ezekiel if he believes in the bones themselves. The bones are just bones. But he's saying, do you think that this is the end of the story here? Or as long as I'm in the room with you, do you think there's another chapter ahead? It's a question that every one of us has to contend with if we are followers of Jesus. Is is there anything so dead in our lives that we pronounced it, called the time, contacted the coroner's office? Is there? Because if there is, then it may point to the fact that God has already left the building for you. Where hope dies, God is absent. That's why this question is so important. That's why the writer of Hebrews got it so right when when he said it this way. So you see, it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that there is a God and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. Now, God holds the power of life and death. That's what it means when Ezekiel calls him, O sovereign God. That means when it's time to go home, it's time to go home. He will not answer every desperate prayer for revival, but revival is impossible without God. But where there is God, the possibility... The hope of revival exists, and hope is essential to the human experience. Recently, my son Elijah found out from his school district that he missed getting accepted into the gifted program by one point. Do you know how hard that is to accept, even for me as an adult? But for a little kid, his older brother and his older sister got in. He thought for sure he was going to get in, and he missed it. And he was heartbroken. And we found out there's a loophole where if your teacher thinks the school district made a mistake, then they watch you during your your fourth grade. And then if they recommend you personally, you have a loophole where you might be able to get in the next year. So Elijah kept saying over and over to me, do you think that maybe I can get through by that way? Do you think there's hope that I can still get in? And I see for this young kid how central, how essential a little hope is to keep him going. Did you guys see the movie The Tooth Fairy? just saw that over spring break with my kids. We don't want to be like him, just dashing kids up. Oh, kid, just lower your expectations because life is rough and you won't make it. We don't want to be like that. Hope is so important. And what's great about God is hope in God is not false hope. The difference between faith and wishing is that God secures and underwrites faith. Do you get that? Here's the second thing we need to absolutely learn about revival. The process by which revival, and I mean true revival, the restoration of life to a dead thing happens. Then he said to me, prophesy and say to them, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. You guys awake? Can you hear the? I can't even say the words without laughing. That's just absurd. Just here's Ezekiel in this quiet, dusty valley of dry bones. He goes, Do you think they can live? And Ezekiel goes, Sure, I guess. And he's expecting God to go, Hayabasama, and you know, just dust and everything. But instead, God says to Ezekiel, Prophesy to those dead bones, talk to them. I just be like, What? What is that going to accomplish? What does it accomplish to talk to a dead thing? If I say to my hamster, Oswald, that I, that I, I watch my, my little hamster in seminary 
die. In fact, I held his little hand when he took his last breath. What if I said to him, Oswald, I prophesy to you, God wants you to... It's not going to work. Words seem so pathetically inadequate in the face of death. I, I get that attitude a lot because people come to me for counseling and they're presenting enormously heavy obstacles in their lives. This is big, Pastor Dave. This is not your run-of-the-mill conflict. This is big. And I begin to give them the word of God and there's this kind of pushback. Like, yeah, I know that's a good verse and everything, but I don't think you understand. This is big. This is really dead here. I appreciate the words, but we need more than words. Words seem inadequate in the face of something so powerfully gone wrong. My marriage is on the line, and you're giving me Bible verses. Give me something else. Give me a stick to hit him with. Make him stop loving that other woman. I need something more than words. That's the great deception of the enemy, is that there is actually some potent force out in this world stronger than the word of God. What God says to Ezekiel in this situation is, you think that I have to wave my hands, but there's nothing more potent in the universe than the authority of my spoken word. When I talk to things, stuff happens. Now here's why we have a hard time accepting that. Our authority is so shallow and limited. Do you have any idea how many times I've yelled at my children for the same thing? Parents, can I at least get an amen? Are you, are you serious? Well, you guys are perfect kids. You go, Sonny, don't fight. And they never fight again. Give me a break. You go, stop fighting. Stop torturing your little sister. And they're like, all right, mom. They just write back at it. Why? Because our authority is a joke. Our authority can only set a standard. I can tell my children what I expect of them, but I cannot give them the power to change. That's the limit of my authority, which is why I start to doubt the authority of God's word. But God's word is interesting. It doesn't just set the bar. It conveys power to reach it. If I tell someone to do better, I will frustrate them. But when God tells them to do better, with that command, he gives the ability to do better. You want proof of that? Jesus once gave a very absurd command himself when he was on the earth. He stood outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who had died several days back. And everyone was ticked off at Jesus, but too scared to tell him, why were you so slow getting here? You know when you're in a hurry and everyone on the road seems to be driving slow? Here's Jesus, I'll get there. I know he's sick, but you know, I got stuff to do. And he's taking his time on purpose. He rolls into Bethany a little late, and there's everybody mourning. They've already had the wake and the funeral and the... Dude, what happened to you? Did you get lost? And Jesus goes, just take me to the tomb. And he stands outside the tomb and listen to what Jesus says. John eleven forty three, Lazarus, this is the most absurd verse in the Bible, I think. Lazarus, come out. Are you dumb? You don't just tell dead people, come out. But this is the thing. I can tell someone I love who's died, please get back up. And nothing will happen. But God says to the dead even, wake up. And they obey. Because it wasn't just a command as if it were really good advice. It was a command whose very words transferred power. You must never, ever despise the word of God. 
There is nothing more powerful that can be applied to the deadness in your life than God's word. And you know what it says here? Here's what he says to the dry bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. You will come to life. We need to remember that God is not okay with death. It was never part of the plan. In the original universe, there was no such thing as death. It was the consequence of rebellion, but it was not part of God's deal. And now that death has entered the picture, he hates it and he loves life. Don't ever forget that. Death fills the world and we contribute to the death every single day, but God gives life. That's something we should never, ever forget about God. Think about some of the great God verbs. That's a new grammatical term I came up with. Instead of adverbs, there's God verbs. These wonderful words that describe what God does so powerfully in people's lives. And look at all these words. He redeems, restores, refreshes, renews, revives. And the prefix, in case you missed it, is re. He does again. He kickstarts things that have died. He refreshes, renews, he re-everything. Because this is God. He's not content to watch things get old and crusty. He makes them new again. What is one of the great signal verses of the new creation? Behold, in Christ you are a new creation, a new thing. The old is gone, the new has come. Jesus says that when you are saved, it is like you are born again. Wouldn't you love to be able to start all over with everything you know now? Control Z, your life, reset it, control all, delete. Go, I'm going to start all over with all my current wisdom. I'm going to start over. And if you did that, imagine how different your life could have been. God does this in the world. Everything on the other side of that re is what the world does. And God re everything. This is the nature, the heart of God. And that's why whenever we are in crisis or in the valley of death, the most important thing we can invite into our lives is the Word of God. Do not despise the Word of God. You know, it might come to you through just reading the Bible. It might be coming to you right now through this sermon. Don't for a moment think that this is just some debate or some persuasive speech. I have no power in my brain to make you change. The word of God is coming out through these words I've cobbled together in my poor and shallow mind. Somehow through all of this, if you're listening for it, the voice of God will sneak through all this, and with that voice, power will come. Hope can be restored when you're so tempted to just give up and say, this is never going to be different. I'll just have to learn to lower my standards and live with this. And God says, no, you absolutely do not have to do that. There's no place in the picture of the Christian life for that kind of settling. God renews things. He revives what is dead. It might come to you through a radio show. You have no idea how I've been ministered to by radio preachers. Just say, That's my church. Who preaches to me? Sometimes Jeannie. But, you know... <laughs> And she's pretty good, actually. I maybe want to ordain her one day and have her come up here. But so often, James Ford or Tony Evans or Chuck Swindoll or anybody, these guys who just preach, and I just, they, they clobber me upside the head. And the Starbucks coffee is, you know, 
corporations don't give you the word of God. But sometimes over a cup of coffee, a trusted friend will give you and be discerning about this, not just advice. Advice is garbage, it's toilet paper. Use it, throw it away. Okay? Not just advice, but they'll give you God's word. That's a friend you hang on to, not someone who drones on and on. You know what I think you should do? Oh, my God, girl, I can't believe you said that. You should just, that's stupid. That's a waste of coffee and time. Donate five bucks to World Vision to stay home. Because that will not move your life one inch forward. You know what will? A friend who will actually give you God's word will lovingly tell you this is what God has for you. Follow him. Do what he says. I got nothing else for you. Do what God says you'll live. That's a friend you cherish in this life. When you're in the valleys, sometimes it's a great temptation to say the word of God isn't enough. But it's always enough. And listen to what it says here. So I prophesied as I was commanded. Ezekiel's obedient. And listen to what it says. As I was prophesying, literally as the words were leaving his mouth, something starts to happen. There's, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and them bones came together. And he didn't have to walk around going, let's see, which one? I don't know my anatomy. I should have paid attention. And he's putting together all these goofy looking. No, the bones are reconstituting themselves. Bodies know where the bones go. And everybody's just becoming alive again. Isn't it amazing that as he responds in faith-filled obedience, God's response is immediate, right away. No sooner are the words leaving his mouth then the first signs of life begin to stir. That's so important. You have no idea how God does that again and again in our lives. When our attitudes stink and we're fighting God and we're pushing him away, nothing ever happens but one faith-filled step of obedience. Just one step that goes, forget my bad attitude. I'm just going to do what I know I'm supposed to do. I will obey God. And in that single step, before your other foot hits the ground, you will hear a rustling in the spiritual realm. God loves to reward obedient faith. He loves to meet us instantly to tell us you're going in the right direction. You know, when you're teaching your child to walk, man, for the first time, six months, nine months, however old they are, do you go, stupid kid, I told you to walk this way. Who is this, you dummy? Do you do that to your children? Look at He falls. And do you punish them? No. What do you say? They go, and you go, yeah, you're doing it. Keep coming because human beings do not grow through discouragement. We grow through hope. We need someone to tell us you're on the right track. Whatever you're doing right now, keep doing that. That's how we grow. And when you obey, it's amazing. You know, there have been times when I've been in, a, in, in an argument with Jeannie and I feel really self-righteous. I'm like, Whatever. I look at her and say, if you want to play a chess game, I'm good at chess, girl. I'll, I'll, wait. I'll outlast you. But then the word of God comes and says, you stupid dummy, don't let the sun go down in your anger. You humble yourself. God exalts the humble. He casts down the prideful. And so I'll come up to her and I'll, even though I was right 90% of it, I was wrong for 10%. I can tell you, honestly, I was very wrong for 10%. I will go and give a 100% apology for the 10% wrong that I did. 
Sometimes I'm 90% wrong. <laughs> I'm a little slower to apologize then. But, you know, the point is, when you make that first move, and I'm thinking it's going to be a risk. What if I go and make my first move towards an apology? And she goes, I knew you were going to apologize eventually because you were totally wrong and I was totally right. And I'm going to want to punch something, right? And so I'm wondering, what if I do what God says and it doesn't work? What if it backfires on me? But you know what's amazing? Every time that I obey God, honey, I'm sorry for the way I just talked to you. You deserve better than that. She goes, it's okay. I was wrong too. And I, what? What did you say? It sounds like bones rattling to me now. It's God's way of saying, you did the right thing, and I'm going to make sure you're rewarded because this is how we live. This is how we repair the cesspool of a world we're living in is that we obey God because fewer and fewer people are doing it. And Lord knows without us doing that, there's no hope for this world. We will obey him and God will always meet us in that. He always will. But where your nasty attitude persists, God will not let you hear the rattling of those bones. But here's another amazing observation is that after the rattling starts and the skeleton starts to form, there is this process that follows. How many of you saw Hollow Man? Anybody? Okay. See more movies, everyone, please. I don't know what you're doing with your time, but listen. In Hollow Man, this invisible guy starts to reconstitute. He becomes visible again, and it happens from the inside out. So it's a great visual. I wanted to actually play it, but it's really gross, so I don't want to shock anyone. But you see the bones forming, and then all the muscles and vessels and everything, just all the sinews. That's such a biological word, sinews, all forming and everything. And the body is forming again. It's all bloody and gross, and then skin covers over it. And the idea is after the first stirring of the bones, the body begins to take shape. The skeleton, which is the framework upon which everything else is held together, that basic core of a thing begins to get rebuilt and reshaped. And then on that strong core, all the accoutrements, all the accessories begin to hang and find their place. And finally, the skin is wrapped around so that what once was a heap of bones now looks like a fully functioning, living human body. This is the progressive nature of revival. And here's what I need to say to our church. What happens at most revival meetings, that is not true revival. That is the rustling of bones. It is that early start where God says, you're in the right place doing the right thing. Keep at it. But don't for a moment think that that sound of bones coming together is enough to carry you all the way home. It's just the beginning, God's first immediate response to encourage you. Notice how that kind of revival rarely lasts unless it's followed by the slow, methodical, progressive rebuilding of the essence of a person before God. You don't just see ghosts speak in tongues, run around in circles, and then suddenly go back to your old dead life thinking that you're going to be different inside. God will rebuild your ability to sit quietly in his presence and listen to him and talk to him and read his word. He will slowly rebuild the basics of your marriage, the ability to just be civil, to share a smile, to say please and thank you. For some couples, that's how far it's gone, is that they're not even civil human beings to each other. They're nicer to telemarketers than they are to their, their own spouse. And it's that basics that now begin to take on shape and form again. And then, when these bodies are fully formed 
And a bunch of people are standing up in this valley like this. Like mannequins. You get that? This is all that's happened so far is bones have become this. Right? What's missing? What's missing? It's that thing we can't put in. It's life. And God says, behold, having begun the process of true revival, I will do that final thing now. And he says, breath, wind. That's the same Hebrew word for spirit. Blow into these things and set it living again. I tell you this. I'm worried about time, so I'll just say this quickly. We need to be hungry and desperate again in the church for the Holy Spirit of God. Don't for a moment think good leadership, sound processes, a website is going to hold this church together. This will be nothing more than a polished shell that looks like this. Apart from the Holy Spirit of God, this church will be dead on its feet, beautiful, having the form of godliness but lacking its power. And so we need the Holy Spirit more than ever before because this is a beautiful church in shape and form, but it needs life every day afresh from the Holy Spirit of God. If you pray for this church at all, pray this over and over. Holy Spirit of God, come and fill this church. Make it a living church. And pray the same for your own life. Let me wrap up with one final observation here. And that is the purpose of revival. The purpose of revival. Let me ask you something. Why, why not just leave the dead bones alone? Are they bothering anybody? Doesn't everything die anyway? Why revive anything that's dead? I know lots of married people are asking that question. Can't I just cut the cord, move on? Maybe by a freak chance, I will fall in love again someday. I will meet someone new. That's the roll of the dice that so many Americans are hoping for. Let me just try again. Maybe I'll get lucky the next time. Why would God bother to revive a dead thing? Well, I think at least we see two things here. One is, it's, look, let me just let the word of God speak for itself. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 6. Verse 12 to 13. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. How about this one, verse 14. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and that I have done it. Why does God revive what is dead? Because it is one of the principal ways he draws people back to him. It's one of his ways of saying, you've been very far from me, and I have missed you, and you have missed me more than you know. And sometimes, God will let you walk a long time in the valley until you realize home is back with him. He will restore the dead things in your life. He will restore your dead heart because he wants to know you again, and he wants you to know him again. The reward is not a restored life. The reward is the God who gave life. He himself is the reward. And so many of us have prayed foxhole prayers. God, just let her say yes when I propose. Just let me graduate. Just let me get the job. And then I will X, Y, Z. And all the prosperity has come. And all the answers have come. And you have disbanded, you've dismantled that heart for God along the way. You know how many foxhole prayers have offended the heart of God? Just get me out of this mess, God, and I'll walk for you. I'll live for you. 
Wonderful sentiment. Horrible execution on the part of so many of us. God has blessed us because he wants to walk with us. And if God answers your prayers, know this, his primary purpose is to draw you back home to him. And when that doesn't happen, because God is a jealous God, you can expect to find yourself back in the valley again one day. Because he's not going to give up on you. Let me give you one last thing here. So I prophesied as he commanded, verse 10. And breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet. Listen to the words that he uses. A vast army. Of all the things he could have called this reconstituted mob of people, a family, a nation, a kingdom, the word he chooses is army. What an interesting choice of words. Probably because, like Heath's illustration, they put on armor and picked up weapons. Probably a child could have looked at that vision and said, yeah, that's an army right there. And that speaks to why God gives life to any of us. What do armies do? They execute missions for their kingdom. One thing I love about the military is they don't mess around. There's not a lot of meetings for planning everything. There's a lot of just, we've got the thing, let's just do it. Get out there, move, touch something, break something, but don't sit around in a huddle talking about it forever. I think God restores broken things in our lives because he wants to restore the usefulness of them in his hands. Can I ask you a question? If God saves your marriage... Will he have any more access to that marriage than he did before? Will you just high-five God and say, it's so good to be happy again? It's so nice to be loved again? And think that the end of all of that was just so you could feel kumbaya as you once did. Well, that's part of the reward. But do you realize that one of the reasons that marriages slip into disrepair It's because that family is not available to God. They may be happy, but they're useless in the kingdom. This is a family whose whole goal is to be happy and not to be used of God. And when he restores that broken family, he intends to use it in a way that he didn't before. And I want to challenge you with this. There are broken things in your life that by God's grace, he will revive. But know this, it must be made available to him then in ways that it never was before. You do that, and you will not pass through the valley again unnecessarily. I'm starting to lose some of you, so let me just finish this way. If there isn't something dying or dead in your life right now, there will be. Maybe it'll be your own heart, Maybe if you're in a happy marriage now, it seems unthinkable, but you'd be surprised how quickly a marriage deteriorates. I've watched it, and it's shocking. There's no process, it feels like. It's just overnight. Maybe your children will grow up and leave your house before you even realize you were supposed to raise them. 
things break in this world. They die. And it leaves us at that moment wondering, is there any hope? Can these dry bones live? And God's resounding answer to us is, if he's in the picture, then hope is justified. And absolutely, dead things can live again. And I'm not going to just ask you to shoulder the burden of hope and faith by yourself. God, in saying all of this, tells you, if you'll submit your heart, he will give you help for your unbelief. So we're going to go into prayer right now. And I'm going to ask you to bow with me. And we're going to begin with those things that are dying and breaking right now in this church. If it's not your life, then I want you to just pray for somebody you know. Because I'm, I guarantee you, if you're paying attention, you know somebody in this world who's experiencing grief right now. Something is dying. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.